0: All right, we are back. We have often over the years quoted from The Economist magazine because it does a pretty thorough job of of covering a lot of things. that just sometimes doesn't get noticed in the American press. The Economist tends to be a very conservative magazine. It's business-oriented, which I think would make a lot of people skeptical about the magazine when it puts a cover story out, as it did in its April 8th issue titled What America Gets Wrong About Gender Medicine. We've been sitting on this piece for a while, and and today's the day we're going to, I think, jump into it. Now, I know that some of you are going to take issue with what you're about to hear, but airing different opinions and talking about them is what we need more of in America and and everywhere. I think we need to hear what this British publication has to say. I think they've gotten this pretty much right. You may disagree, but nevertheless, let's take a look at what they said. Under the editorial, The Dangers of Gender Medicine, the economist said, For many Americans, the great tragedy of trans rights is the story of how Republican governors and state legislatures are stigmatizing some of society's most put-upon people, all too often in a cynical search for votes. This newspaper shares their dismay at these vicious tactics. In a free society... This is not the government's place to tell adults how to live and dress, which pronouns to use, or what to do with their bodies. However, nestled within that first tragedy appears to be a second, this time a tragedy of good intentions. On different sides of the Atlantic, medical experts have weighed the evidence for the treatment of gender dysphoric children and teenagers, those who feel intense discomfort with their biological sex, This treatment is life-changing and can lead to infertility. Broadly speaking, the consensus in America is that medical intervention and gender affirmation are beneficial and should be more accessible. Across Europe, several countries now believe that the evidence is lacking and such interventions should be used sparingly and need further study. Notes the economist, the Europeans are right. The number of children and teenagers diagnosed with gender dysphoria in America has soared. One estimate found that there were 42,000 new diagnoses in 2021, three times the amount in 2017. Gender-affirming care, as America understands it, stipulates counseling, which can lead to puberty-blocking drugs, and subsequently cross-sex hormones, testosterone for girls, estrogen for boys in one estimate, in 10% of cases. Occasionally, there may be mastectomies, and very rarely, in the under 18, the construction of ersatz genitals from flaps of skin or pieces of bowel. The goal is to align the patient's body with the way they think about themselves. Proponents say that the care is vital to the well-being of dysphoric children. Failure to provide it, they say, is transphobic and risks patients killing themselves. The affirmative approach is supported by the American Academy of Pediatrics and most of the country's main medical bodies. I want to editorialize myself at this point that I've seen the actions of the American Academy of Pediatrics over the decades, and I often find them to be, well, let's just say controversial, notes the economist. Arrayed against those supporters are the medical systems of Britain, France, Finland, Norway, and Sweden, all of which have raised the alarm, describing the treatments as experimental and urging doctors to proceed with great medical caution. There is growing concern that if teenagers are offered this care too widely, the harms will outweigh the benefits. Skipping ahead in the editorial, America's professional bodies acknowledge the science is of low quality, but they have a duty to alleviate patients' mental anguish. Some patients suffer regret in all medical procedures, from knee surgery to liposuction, and they observe that the most shocking allegations about poor treatment are only anecdotes. Speaking on American radio last year, Rachel Levine, Assistant Secretary for Health and a pediatrician, was very clear, saying, quote, There is no argument among medical professionals about the value and importance of gender affirming care, unquote, to which I would say, Well, no, not all medical professionals. I'm sorry. That is not correct, Dr. Levine, said the economist in the wake of the claim that there's no argument among medical professionals, uh, except that there is. When medical staff raise concerns that teenage girls may be caught up in a social contagion, say, or that some parents see transition as a way to have a straight daughter rather than a gay son, they've been vilified as transphobic and in some cases suffered personal and professional opprobrium. Medical science is not supposed to work this way. Treatments are supposed to be backed by a growing body of well-researched evidence that weighs the risks and benefits of intervention. The responsibility is all the heavier when treatments are irreversible and the decisions about whether to go ahead are being taken by vulnerable adolescents and their anxious parents. What to do? To sum the uncertainties that surround medical interventions are grounds for outright ban, In fact, the lack of evidence cuts both ways. Perhaps, when proper trials are complete, their proponents will be proved correct. The right policy is, therefore, the one Britain's NHS and the Karolinska Institute in Sweden seem to be working toward. This would be to promote psychotherapy and reserve puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for a system in which patients would almost always be enrolled in a well-run clinical trial. They concluded by saying ideally American regulators would insist on trials too if the culture war puts that compromise out of reach professional bodies should uphold their own protocols by welcoming whistleblowers and advanced science by calling on patients to be in trials sometimes there will need to be protest against illiberal laws after all they should not add to the tragedy now in the briefing section of the magazine that gets into the nuts and bolts of of this, uh, of this discussion To quote from the piece, Prisha Mosley was 17 when she was first given testosterone in the clinic in North Carolina after she had declared to her parents that she was a boy. She had struggled through her teen years with anorexia and depression after a sexual assault. Luke Lahine had both breasts removed as a 16-year-old in Nebraska. Chloe Cole in California was a year younger when she had her double mastectomy. She had been on testosterone and puberty blocking drugs since 13, also after a sexual assault. Notes the magazine, all three girls were experiencing gender dysphoria, a feeling of intense discomfort with their own sexed bodies. Once a rare diagnosis, it has exploded over the past decade. In England and Wales, the number of teenagers seeking treatment at the Gender Identity Development Service, GIDS, the main clinic treating dysphoria, has risen 17-fold, Since 2012. An analysis by Reuters based on data from Komodo, a health technology firm, estimated that more than 42,000 American children and teenagers were diagnosed in 2021, which, as we just said a moment ago, was three times the count of 2017. Komodo's data suggested that about 5,000 teenagers were prescribed puberty blockers or cross sex hormones in America in 2021, doubled the number in 2017 noted this treatment is controversial in many countries but in america above all it has become yet another front in the culture wars many on the left caricature critics of gender affirming care as callously disregarding extreme distress and even suicides among adolescents with gender dysphoria in their determination quote to erase unquote trans people Zealots on the right, meanwhile, accused doctors of being so hell-bent on promoting gender transitions that they, quote, groom, unquote, vulnerable teenagers, which is a term usually applied to pedophiles. In October, supporters and critics of gender-affirming care held rival rowdy protests outside a meeting of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Several American states, such as Florida and Utah, have passed laws banning gender-affirming care in children. President Biden has described such laws as close to sinful, to which they add almost all America's medical authorities support gender-affirming care, while, as mentioned, those in Britain, Finland, France, Norway, and Sweden are supporting talking therapy as a first step. The economist notes there's no question that many children and parents are desperate to get help with gender dysphoria. Some consider the physical elements of gender-affirming care to have been life-saving treatments. But the fact that some patients are harmed is not in doubt either. Ms. Mosley, Ms. Hine, and Ms. Cole, mentioned at the top of the article, are all, quote, detransitioners, unquote. They've changed their minds and no longer wish to be seen as male. All three bitterly regret the irreversible effects of their treatment and are angry at doctors who they say rush them into it. Ms. Cole considers herself to have been butchered by institutions we all thought we could trust. Then there's the matter of puberty blockers. They do what the name suggests. They block transitioning into puberty. The idea is that suspending unwanted sexual development can give patients time to think about their dysphoria and whether or not they want to pursue more drastic interventions. The science on this is a mess. In 2020, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence... A British body, which reviews the scientific underpinnings of medical treatments, looked at the case for puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. The academic evidence it found was weak, discouraging, and in some cases, contradictory. The studies suggest puberty blockers may have little impact on patients. Cross-sex hormones may improve mental health, but the certainty of that finding was low. And NICE warned of the unknown risks of lasting side effects. Anyway, skipping ahead to the end and I hope you will read this entire article, which you can I'm sure find online in in the Economist. It concludes by saying both within America and without, whatever the loudmouths may claim, the vast majority of practitioners are simply trying to ease the genuine suffering of adolescents afflicted by gender dysphoria. But in America in particular, the charged atmosphere has made it very difficult to separate the science from the politics. We've put it out in this program many times in the past, and we'll do so right now. Again, that when you mix science and politics, you get politics. Now, since that, uh, that piece came out in The Economist, there have been further developments in the legal front and, and, and reported on in the media. Writing in The Atlantic, Connor Friedersdorf pondered how we ought to understand sex, gender, and gender identity saying that that and related questions, including whether trans women should be allowed to compete against biological women in sports, ooh, the term biological women, you're going to get a zero, at least when Professor Melanie Rose Nipper gets around to evaluating your paper. Sorry, couldn't resist. In sports, have become so intensely polarized for many Americans that they're resistant or even terrified to voice even tentative opinions, lest they violate ever-changing taboos. If you ask the wrong questions, such as, what is a woman?, or is gender a social construct, you risk being labeled by thought police on the doctrinaire left as transphobic, comma, a bigot, comma, or by the panicked right as a groomer. I cannot resist editorial at this point that the question is gender a social construct. Well, I just call that insane, but that's just me. When NCA swimmer Riley Gaines notes The Atlantic, recently gave a speech in which she argued that women's sports should be limited to biological females. Angry protesters drowned her out and chased her down a hallway hurling threats. Meanwhile, in Republican-controlled states, legislatures are criminalizing drag performances and parent-approved hormone treatment for children with gender dysphoria. Noted Frieder's Doris, people inhabit different universes on gender, which dooms reasoned civil debate. Extremists on both sides insist there's only one valid view on gender and that all others must be silenced, punished, or even made into crimes. Anyway, judges have been weighing in on this of late. We've taken some pot shots at conservative justices earlier on in this program, so I guess we have to raise some issues about some on the other side. In one case, District Judge James Moody in Arkansas struck down that state's first-in-the-nation law banning transgender minors from receiving hormones, puberty blockers, and surgeries. Moody said the 2021 law violated medical providers' First Amendment rights and patients' rights to due process and equal protection under the law. Rather than protecting children or safeguarding medical ethics, the evidence showed that The prohibited medical care improves the mental health and well-being in patients, wrote Moody, echoing medical associations, including, as we've noted, the American Academy of Pediatrics. The state is appealing the ruling. Meanwhile, down in Florida, a state whose politics we're not overly fond of, District Judge Robert Hinkle ruled a few weeks back that three transgender minors would suffer irreparable harm if denied access to puberty blockers and hormone treatments. The decision there applied only to three children whose parents sued Florida, but Hinkle said other families with trans kids who challenged the state's recent ban are likely to prevail on their claim that the prohibition is unconstitutional. I'm a little unclear on that, but I'm no lawyer. Florida Republicans have called gender transition interventions evil and child abuse and said medical associations endorsing the treatments are politically motivated. Well, we have to sort of agree on that, that when you mix politics and science, you get politics. Meanwhile, since that article in The Economist came out, the U.S. House has weighed in on this. The bill, approved by a 219 to 203 party line vote, noted that transgender athletes whose biological sex assigned at birth was male would be barred from competing on girls' or women's sports teams, at least at federally supported schools and colleges. And yes, I'm a little bit shocked that this was a vote along party lines. Every single Republican in the House thought this was a good idea and every single Democrat in the House voted against it. Holy mackerel. Supporters framed this bill as a vote supporting female athletes disadvantaged by having to compete against those whose gender identity does not match their sex assigned at birth, to which we would add, and all those those who went through puberty as a male. Opponents criticized the bill as ostracizing an already vulnerable group merely for political gain. The sponsor, Representative Greg Stube of Florida, highlighted the case of Emma Wayland, a resident in her district and a 2020 member of the Olympic swimming team who finished second in the NCAA women's 500-yard freestyle last year. She was defeated by Leah Thomas, Who had competed just three years earlier on the University of Pennsylvania men's swimming team before joining the women's team, said Staub. The integrity of women's sports must be protected. Democrats said every child, regardless of gender identity, deserves the opportunity of being on a team, and that preventing competitors from doing so sends the message that they don't matter. All right. And to conclude this discussion, at least in part, because we're going to return to it in the future, I'm going to cite a New York Times article by Michael Powell. Which was sent to us by a listener article titled what Leah Thomas could mean for women's elite sports starts off by noting the women at Princeton swim team spoke of collective frustration edging into anger. They had watched Leah Thomas, a transgender woman who swam for the University of Pennsylvania, win meet after meet, beating Olympians and breaking records. Last January night, the team met with Robin Harris, executive director of the Ivy League's athletic conference. Harris had already declared her support for transgender athletics and denounced transphobia. In an interview, she said she replied she would not change the rules in mid-season. The swimmers, several of whom described their private meeting on conditions of anonymity, detailed the biological advantages possessed by transgender women athletes. To ignore these, they said, was to undermine a half-century fight for female equality in sports. Notes the article, the battle of whether to let female transgender athletes compete in women's elite sports has reached an angry pitch the hard-fought-for right of women to compete in high school, college, and pro sports versus a swelling movement to allow transgender athletes to compete in their chosen gender identities. It's noted that although the number of transgender athletes on top teams is small, the precise count is elusive as no major athletic association collects such data. Weighing in on this is Olympic champion runner and the head of world athletics, Sebastian Coe and the organization governs international track. He speaks of biological differences as inescapable. Gender, he said recently, cannot trump biology. Leah Thomas herself has chosen silence. In March, after she won the 500-yard freestyle at the NCAA Women's Championship in Atlanta, she skipped the news conference, saying later, I'm not a man, I'm a woman, so I belong on the women's team. It's noted that even the nomenclature is contentious. Descriptive phrases such as biological woman and biological man might be seen as central to discussing differences in performance. Many trans-right activists say such expressions are transphobic and insist biology and gender identity are largely social constructs, to which I would say some trans activists try to silence critics whom they derisively call TERFs, which stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminists. Martina Navratilova, former tennis champ, argues that transgender female athletes possess insurmountable biological advantages. So I'm a turf, Okay, that's the way you want to go? She said recently, I played against taller women, I played against stronger women, and I beat them all. But if I faced the male equivalent of Leah in tennis, that's biology. I would have not had a shot and I would have been livid. Article notes there's a great debate in science, citing Dr. Michael Joyner, doctor at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, who studies the physiology of male and female athletes. He notes that since prepubescent girls grow faster than boys, they have a competitive advantage early on. Puberty washes that away. You see the divergence immediately as the testosterone surges into boys, said Dr. Joyner. There are dramatic differences in performance. Let's take a look at what means in the case of Leah Thomas. When Thomas entered women's meets, she rose substantially in national rankings. Among men, she'd ranked 32nd in the 1,650-yard freestyle. Among women, She ranked eighth. She'd ranked 554th in the men's 200 yard freestyle and tied for fifth place in the race at the women's 2022 NCAA championship. She ranked 65th in the men's 500 yard freestyle but won the title as a female. Said Dr. Ross Tucker, a sports physiologist who consults with World Athletics, Leah Thomas is a manifestation of scientific evidence. The reduction in testosterone did not remove her biological advantage. And really, it's quite an advantage. The piece notes that the sprinter, Allison Felix, won the most world championship medals in history. But her lifetime best in the 400 meters was 49.26 seconds. In 2018, 275 high school boys ran faster. Renee Richards, who was a pioneer among transgender athletes, an ophthalmologist and accomplished amateur tennis player, played in the U.S. Open and ranked 13 in the men's 35 and older division. She transitioned in 1975 at age 41, joined the women's pro tennis tour at age 43, which is ancient in athletic terms, and then made it to the doubles final at Wimbledon and ranked 19th in the world before retiring at 47. Richards has said she no longer believes it is fair for transgender women to compete at the elite level saying, quote, I know if I'd had surgery at the age of 22 and then at 24 went on the tour, no genetic woman in the world would have been able to come close to me. I've reconsidered my opinion. And here's the number one ranked female tennis player in the world, Serena Williams, speaking about this on David Letterman. Well, Actually, it's funny because Andy Murray, he all oh, he was been joking about um, myself and him playing a match, and I'm like, Andy, seriously, like, are you kidding me? Because for me, tennis in men's tennis and women's tennis are completely almost two separate sports. So, I'm like, if I were to play Andy Murray, I would lose 6-0, 6-0 in five to six minutes, maybe 10 minutes. Because <laughs> no, that, it's or, true. It's honestly, true. it's a completely really? It's a completely different sport. The men are a lot faster, and, me, and um, they, they, get, they serve harder, they hit harder. It's just a different game. Mm. And I love to play women's tennis, <laughs> and I, I only want to play girls because I don't want to be embarrassed. I would not do the tour. I wouldn't do Billie Jean any justice. So Andy, stop it. Yeah. We're not gonna, I'm not going to let you kill me. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. When it comes to tennis, I only want to play girls. Anyway, well, a lot more to say about this in the future. As a medical doctor and biologist, I just have to say, gender is not a social construct, no matter what trans activists have to say about it. And we're going to stop right there. Because we have some other things to take issue with. In this case, the presidential candidacy of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Now, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has has some positives. He says a lot of good things about uh, our system here in the United States, although His ability to reach out and change them, I think, is uh, rather somewhat in doubt. But he says a lot of things that make a lot of sense to us. However, speaking as a physician, when he opens his mouth and talks about vaccines and a lot of science related to vaccines, I would say he is a quack. He's a scientific near illiterate from what I can see. And the stuff he says about medicine is wrong and harmful. I know, you're asking why it is I'm holding back. We're going to try and convince someone who's written extensively about RFK's uh, medical misstatements on the program, but that won't be today. We would refer you to whowhatwhy.com and what uh, past Radio Parallax guest Russ Baker has to say on this topic. He's certainly been disagreed with by another former guest of ours who we're quite fond of, David Talbot. They take opposite sides on the issue of what uh, JFK what RFK Jr. has to say about um, vaccines. But I think I'm going to pull some quotes from uh, various sources here. Ed Kilgore, writing in New York Magazine, said, Democrats shouldn't ignore Robert F. Kennedy Jr. The 69-year-old anti-vaccine conspiracy theorist is a nuisance candidate in the Democratic presidential primary, but he's still managing to poll from 15 to 25%. The son of Robert F. Kennedy and nephew of President John F. Kennedy comes from a legendary family in Democratic politics. That's why voters need to be told that this Kennedy is not a real Democrat. RFK Jr. believes that childhood vaccines cause autism and the COVID vaccine is dangerous and that G5 phone networks damage people's brains and that antidepressants may cause mass shootings. This is far-right fringe stuff, but with Fox News and people like Elon Musk, Tucker Carlson, and Steve Bannon promoting Kennedy as a spoiler to damage Joe Biden, Democrats need to expose him as a pest doing the bidding of the opposing party. Writing in the Daily Beast, Anthony Fisher said if he had a different last name, RFK Jr. would be polling around one percent. But libertarian tech pros and right-wingers are touting Kennedy as a courageous contrarian pushing back against the mainstream groupthink. That's nonsense. RFK Jr., said Anthony Fisher, has spent decades promoting stupid and dangerous ideas and is wrong about just about everything. Once an environmental activist, he now says climate change has become a crisis like COVID that Davos groups are using as a pretext for clamping down totalitarian controls. Yikes. He says that chemicals in drinking water are turning kids transgender. And something that I... I would actually agree with, says the CIA very likely assassinated his uncle and father and might assassinate him too. Paul Waldman writing in the Washington Post said exposing RFK Jr. doesn't have to mean debating him. Right-wing broadcaster Joe Rogan recently challenged virologist Peter Holtz to debate Kennedy about vaccines and Holtz wisely declined. I guess it's Hotez, sorry. He knows conspiracy theorists can't be persuaded by evidence or reason and that a debate would only elevate a crank to a status he doesn't deserve. And it should be noted that he's contributed to the fact that millions of Americans have declined COVID vaccines. Anyway, rest assured, as this campaign continues, we're going to have a little bit more to say about Bobby Jr. Mr. Millen pulled up a clip recently where he, on one interview, was saying, you know, I've looked at the periodic table, I only see one mercury up there. So mercury is toxic, period. Well... Not exactly, Junior. Anyway, I hate to close on this, but I can't resist mentioning the fact that uh, Henry Kissinger turned 100 recently, which perhaps may emphasize that old saying that only the good die young. Fred Kaplan, writing in Slate notes that Kiss- as Kissinger turned 100, tributes from his admirers were omitting his bloody legacy. As a Secretary of State and then National Security Advisor under Nixon and Ford, Kissinger achieved some moments of triumph, notably U.S.-Soviet detente, which I'm not sure was his idea, and the opening to China, which also I'm not sure was his idea. But his chessboard trade-off wreaked havoc all over the globe and damaged America's own reputation. Kissinger was the chief architect of U.S. efforts to support Augusto Pinochet's 1973 right-wing military coup in Chile. Then he turned a blind eye to Pinochet's murderous repression of socialist supporters of the ousted president Salvador Allende. Kissinger's worst offense may have been the U.S. secret bombings of Cambodia, which killed an estimated 150,000 people, and so destabilized Cambodia that the murderous Khmer Rouge took over. Kissinger claimed his real politic required pragmatic choices between lesser evils, but his version was utterly amoral, creating a dreadful image of America and the world that seriously damaged U.S. interests. To which I say, amen. I hate to end on that note, but I'm gonna. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. And thanks, Guy, for sitting through this. We'll we'll see you soon.